Following the methodology from our best-selling book, The Resilient Shield, we are delighted to announce the inaugural Resilience Retreat, which will occur in far north Queensland between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 30th of October. The whole point of the retreat is to give you the ability to build your shield, to develop your knowledge and understanding of the key principles related to resilience, to enhance your toolkit and to optimise your performance. Come and be part of an incredible group of humans that are like-minded. Meet our facilitators and motivational speakers. To find out more, email us at retreat at resilientshield.com. Hope to see you there. Welcome to The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis. And you are? Ben Pronk. Oh, welcome, Ben. It's <laughs> lovely ex- to see you. I was not expecting that question, I had to think. <laughs> but I am Ben Pronk. I can confirm that. And uh, Tim Curtis and Ben Pronk of the Unforgiving 60 podcast have a YouTube channel. Uh, not under Unforgiving 60, do we? Yeah. Oh, do we? Yeah. I was looking yeah. at that. <laughs> we've got multiple YouTube channels, so I didn't even know about it. And we have a TikTok account that we've never used. Yeah, but while you're strange. while you're looking that up, our guest today, Bo Miles, also has a YouTube channel. He makes short films and documentaries, and he's got 450,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel. And his most downloaded video in the recent past, 4 million views. How are we tracking in contrast? We're giving him a nudge. We have 132 subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know. Oh, I feel disappointed because I didn't even know we had this channel. And also, we're not very, we're not good at content creation. But we have um, posted a number of videos. In fact, our season two, episode four interview with Mark Wales got 1.2K views. Okay, not quite the four million of miles. Uh, sorry, Bo's a mile an hour marathon. No, not quite, but still not bad. But he's an adventurer and he call him, calls himself a polyjobist. I yeah. quite like that word mm. that he made up. Um, and he does a whole heap of different things. And armed with a PhD, he puts himself into a test tube, experimenting with all of these peculiar ideas, like foraging in a library, see what you could find down the back of the sofa. Mm. And I mean, we've created this podcast to try and see how people are filling their unforgiving minutes. Um, To Bo, the minutes really are unforgiving. We're going to talk to him about death and why we should probably be a bit scared of it. Um, But he certainly is doing that. He's filling his minutes. Um, Quite literally, in in a lot of his videos, he's filling his minutes with things like uh, running a mile an hour um, and planting a tree every minute for 24 hours, which I'm, I'm very interested in talking to him about. That sounds tough, um, even just on paper, let alone actually doing it. But yeah, he's, he's definitely living a, a life less ordinary. And in living a life less ordinary, he says he's got the balance to life, quote, wired, unquote. Yeah, a- actually, it's funny, Tim, when 
you know, we we just recorded the the interview with him. We're recording this intro after the interview, which is weird, but it's a bit of a professional technique that we do. Yeah, just letting you in on that one. Yeah, yeah, a bit of pro tip. But um, the second we concluded the the video, I reflected to you that he's winning at life. I reckon yeah. he's he's really doing it well. Yep, he's also written a book called The Backyard Adventurer. I quite like that. Uh, mm. All of these very achievable things that he's doing and putting on film. Anyone could do most of what he is doing and recording on YouTube. But it's wonderful. And the byline is meaningful and pointless expeditions, self-experiments and the value of other people's junk. Yeah, and I like the fact that, that it is accessible what he's doing, but I don't know that anyone could do it with the same pizzazz. And so I really enjoyed this conversation um, with Bo for that very reason. Let's hear it from Bo. Let's get on with the show. Tell me, do you listen while other people lie in your bed? Tell me a reason why I should disclose the things in my head. I got a feeling it comes to me from I don't know. Well, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. Did you say you're Tim Curtis as always? <laughs> Tim Curtis as always. You, you don't I run am, any. I no am, always. always. Yep. No, that's always right. Tim Curtis. Yep. How are you? Very well, thank you. And Good. joining us via Zoom, Bo Miles. Bo, welcome to the show. Hi, fellas. Nice to see you in your shower. I'm going to give a. I'm going to let people into the world of where you sit right now. It's really cool. But speaking of showers, Bo, you you've just come back from a run and you you haven't bothered having a shower. So we're getting you fresh post run. How how far did you go? Yeah, I'm still sweaty. Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't have one of those watches with me these days. It wouldn't have been more than five or six k's. It was just in the bush. Uh, it's bollocking down with rain here, and I'm steaming up a little garden shed, which is our film studio here in uh, West Gippsland. So. Yeah, I'm I'm very moist. I'm like a good um, muffin at the moment. You know, people describe a muffin as being moist. That's me. So yeah, you got me fresh off a run. So you could be in our uh, shower cubicle. Maybe that's the best place for you. But you're in the garden shed instead. Yeah, yeah, ready to go, guys. I um uh, I had a good look at your website. I'm fascinated by your minds and your lives and, 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 and what you've been up to. So uh, I look forward to the chat. This is good. I, I usually talk about, well, hell, I talk about lots of things with lots of people, but mm. um, I don't often get some hard nuts like yourselves call up and say, hey, let's have a chat about something that in, in some respects is divergent thinking to what you guys have been up to for the last 10 years so this is yeah. good oh our lives and our minds are just very simple so <laughs> you know, i think you'll you'll appreciate that by the end of the show now um Bo, <laughs> turning the microphone on to you so you're a phd you're an experimenter you're a walker a kayaker you're a forager a scavenger but could you maybe give us a few insights into what got you to that point in your life I think I've always sort of been that, Tim. Um, I've got really free thinking. Well, my parents are very different, but they're very complementary too. My dad is, uh, he's very wide thinking, broad thinking uh, artist. And so he's hes quite a resistor. A lot of artists are critical of, you know, sheep mentality, society, fabrics, mm. you know, of governments, of bureaucracies. And yet 
and yet and yet very tied into all that stuff too of course he's very habitual and he'd probably <laughs> he'd probably admit to that but and yet my mother who uh she's she's far more conservative um and yet grew up as sort of uh in very similar households but she's a nurse super hard working and sort of just uh more loyal to systems thinking but between the two of them they always just said Bo do what you like and just be a good human and be busy and be curious and I've had it for in saying all that I, I think I've got this lovely um ability to now reflect on where my creativity and my outdoorness has come from but I was a really underwhelming kid I think I was just a stock standard kid that went through primary school as a sort of I was never really good at anything I wasn't mm. bad at anything I was just a just a young dude and I've it's taken me my whole adulthood to find my kind of niche and where my real uh I suppose pathway it's a bit of a you know a bit of a cliche mm. word but I, I'm on a really good path now and it's funny you say about sort of the the childhood and you describe yourself as a underwhelming kid um I, I was certainly an underwhelming I was oversized I was a bit of a fat kid and it actually, it kind of breaks my heart looking at kids who feel all that pressure at school to know what they want to be or what they need to study or where they need to go. I think it kind of robs some of that, the aspects of youth that I think eventually allow you to explore things that can lead to your ultimate path or journey. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they've, they've said that for a long time about art, haven't they? That um, the great art of the world is created through uh, adversity and animosity and unsureness and, mm. and as an outlet, same with music. And, gee, I, I assume that a lot of athletes in the world are great athletes because they're trying to either run from something or burn off all that energy they've got that's anxiety about the world. Mm. I, I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. It's, um, I think there's something to it. Have you always been an oddball? You just descri- describe yourself, Bo, as a bit of a nut job. Have you always been been like that? No, no. I sort of alluded to that earlier about my underwhelming childhood. <laughs> I've, um, I suppose, because I was underwhelming or, or run of the mill and just a just a real mid packer with everything. That you figure, okay, if you if you do want to stand out or or enjoy being an outlier or to be an outlier, do things that are slightly off kilter. Um, and I suppose I really own my oddity now in the sense that I believe everyone's odd, but I tend <laughs> to just follow through with things. And so that's my shtick. That's be, that becomes my angle is to actually do the things you think rather than uh, think them and not do them, which which I think is the case for a lot of people. Uh, so, yeah, I think I, I probably it's half marketing that I'm just sort of going down this kind of stunt side trip of doing things that are a bit weird. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's very genuine and it's very me because I enjoy it. And do you think that's come as a function of, I guess, getting more comfortable with yourself? I know for myself, I, you know, there is that peer pressure stuff and you want to conform and you, you sort of uh, potentially do things um, that may, may not be as true to yourself as, as you'd like to. And I think as you get older, for me anyway, it's, I care less about what people think and it's, it's kind of very liberating. Did you have that same sort of transition or have you? Yeah, you know, no, absolutely, where you just think, I actually remember the day, you know, how, how we think of pivotal moments or mm. sliding doors in our moments. I do remember sitting at, it was 2013. It was, it was winter. I don't remember much more than that in terms of it's seasonal or date day, but I remember the moment sitting in front of 
a window at my little house that I've just bought that was uh, completely unrenovated. It was almost unlivable, actually. <laughs> and I, I wrote on a bit of paper and stuck it to the wall. And this is very unlike me, but I did the, that. And I stuck this bit of paper on the wall that said, Bo, do what you want. Uh, and you'll never have to think or work a day in your life. And, and I'd, I'd lived a pretty good life up to that point of, I've landed with my bum in honey in lots of ways. I think I'm I'm lucky. I know I'm lucky. I don't take things for granted. But I was still at that stage. You know, I was halfway through my PhD. Or I was just starting it. Sorry, and I had this seasonal job overseas that I kept going back to, which I loved. But it was, it it was kept fragmenting my life. When you're mm. a seasonal worker, buggering off for three or four months a year to different parts of the world, it was it's a pain. You know, your love life becomes crap. Mm. Um, it, I, I hadn't experienced an Australian uh, winter in 10 years. And so I missed seasons. I missed having four seasons. And I was making these compromises for this great lifestyle, but it wasn't quite worth it in the end. And I, yeah, the bit of paper sort of changed me. And what about your PhD, Bo? Can you tell us a bit about what was involved in that? What did you study? Yeah, well, I was, it was half coerced into it. I started a master's project and got halfway through that, and that was going to be by coursework and then maybe a research uh, task at the end of it. And I had I had a, a couple of options, but I got halfway through and I thought, you know what, this is why do all this work on this sort of opus idea of a young man and not make it really teethy? So I, I upgraded to a PhD with the help of a, a great friend and mentor who's been. Um, uh, who I ended up replacing at university. He moved on to another university and I replaced him as the senior uh, as in the outdoor education faculty or department, I suppose you'd say. Um, and he was great. And, and, you know, having one of those sort of pivotal mentor characters in your life that says, you know, Bo, you've got this, no worries. You're a good thinker. Uh, your writing will come up to scratch. And so I started a PhD into expeditionary learning and how, how I suppose, adventure and exploration and, uh, some of the narratives of these stories across time, let alone doing them, have shaped uh, human culture. Mm. And you describe yourself as a polyjobist. What's the importance of being a polyjobist? Well, that's my word, mate. You know, if I'm to coin any word, if, <laughs> if I've got anything on a headstone, I don't think I think I'll be burnt rather than buried. But if I have any kind of uh, something that says something about me in the future, it'll be that. Yeah, I, the thing is, mate, I don't think I'm smart enough to be a polymath. <laughs> which is to be, you know, a, a doctor, an engineer, and a lawyer, and you know, a, an elite athlete and a model. I, I'm, I'm not. I can't do that. I'm not. A, I'm not that elite. So I thought I'm just a poly. I'm kind of like the cook's version of a chef. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good at lots of things, but I'm not a master of any. So I'm a polyjobist. Yeah. We love. Um, there's a, a wonderful quote from um, uh, Heinlein that talks about you know a human being should be able to con a ship and butcher a hog and splint a leg and build a wall and write a sonnet and blah 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 and ends in saying that specialisation is for insects and I really like that idea that you kind of want to be a, a polyjobist you you want to be a generalist and you you want to have a bit of an understanding and you know Charlie Munger talks about the big ideas from the big disciplines. I like that idea of, of bricolage and having all these different sort of um, interests, but being able to bring them together and, and maybe come up with new ideas or even new words like polyjobbers. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I'm not an anti, and I, I totally agree that um, having worked in a university for 10 years, and I, and I love universities, that's why I lasted at least 10 years in one. I think they're, they're kind of at the pointy end of the how, how and where we can think, but they also are oppressive too in that, 
that, you know, some of the greatest professors in the world are so specialized and, and yes, they're specialized uh, for, for many reasons, but a lot of them don't have that breadth anymore that the true, you know, the definition of academia is not one thing at all. Mm. And yet that is, that is largely what a specialist now is, is an academic or a professor. And so, yeah, I, I find it kind of oppressive in, in well-rounded education universities because they have to be. They're so competitive and highly strung that you've got to be, you've got to make your mark in a, in a real niche area. And uh, that just kind of wasn't for me because the, a regular day, a 24-hour day doesn't work like that. I want to go for a run and I want to fix things and I want to be philosophical and, and I want to think about education and science and physics. But I don't, I don't have lifetimes enough to be experts in those fields. Mm. We, we also like um, the Japanese concept of ikigai, which, which says, you know, this, this sweet spot of ikigai exists at the intersection of the, the things you love, the things you're good at, the things the world needs, and the things you can get paid for. Um, mm. It's interesting seeing, you know, do what you want, that, that post-it note that you put on your, your flat, and then to where you are now, it kind of sounds like you've hit pretty close to that concept of ikigai. Yeah, look, I was always pretty close to it anyway. I've never really worked a day in my life. I've always been a happy worker. I've, I've always been happy with mundane jobs, but also happy with really complex, challenging jobs. So I, I'm a, I've got that sort of, I'm lucky in that I know that I've got that optimistic kink. Uh, but yeah, particularly now, you know, I've, I earn stuff all money at the moment, but I've got a great life and I've, I've almost earned my money over the last 20 years to set me up to not have to earn as much. And it's kind of liberating. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, no, I've, I've got balance dialed, I think. Uh, and funnily enough, I've got the, my wife and I've got a five week old child at home. And so, as you can imagine, my ca- caffeine intake's gone uh, bonkers. I'm wide. I'm one wide dude. Uh, but, uh, but I'm becoming super efficient. You know, I'm, I'm writing chapters of my new book at 2am and I'm, you know, I haven't shared in weeks. It's just, you know, I just feel like I'm super efficient at the moment. And it's, I, I love it when these kind of epiphanies come to you through hardship. Being a polyjobist and having your balance wired, you put yourself in these peculiar test tubes and the evidence of that is all over your YouTube channel, Bo Miles, 455,000 followers, and there's 35 plus videos on that channel, including running 650Ks, 2,000 kilometers by kayak, one of my favorites, signing 1,812 <laughs> books after sleeping in a ditch, we know that feeling. <laughs> urban foraging in the library. But the most punishing bow to me seems to be planting a tree every minute for 1,440 minutes in a day. Could you talk about that experience? I'm so glad you said that because it is genuinely, I've done lots of hard things, I think physically and emotionally. And when I say hard, I think all within a kind of a wheelhouse of, of balance and 
I'm talking to you two guys who are, you know, elite soldiers. I'm, you know, so I'm preaching to the choir here. But in terms of, in terms of it, a hard 24 hours physically, that was, that was, mm. it was, hard. you know, for three days I wobbled around like an old man afterwards. And and I, I've run, I ran 14 marathons across the mountains, and uh, I was fine. I went to work the following day, and it was, I was okay. But this, yeah, they, all those trees, and it was all to do with the the bending. It just, I used every dang sinew in my body yeah. and uh and of course you have all these all these professional canadian tree planters pipe up and say oh, i planted five thousand before morning tea you know and i think <laughs> yeah right i mate um fair <laughs> enough you, you did it with a dozer line and you're planting one kind of pine tree you know i planted 25 varieties of trees and i covered the same ground 25 times at, the, at, at least you know and and i'm not a professional <laughs> you know so yeah it was hard and it was great that's bloody funny, and you—I mean, it's classic, isn't it? You—you you always, whenever you do anything, you—you, you, I guess, put your head above the parapet for for someone to take a shot. It's funny that someone would take a shot at, at something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost laughable. You know, I—I I, I take them on as because they're probably pretty sweet-natured fellas, and they—and they, of course, they're much better than me at it. But it's a—it's not apples and apples. I'm yeah. not planning one time you know it's just different but uh yeah <laughs> and it was it one of those things that was harder than you thought initially i mean there's a lot of those kind of challenges i remember my brother at one stage he was working in a kitchen and um the challenge was drink i think it was four liters of full cream milk in two hours which on paper seems very doable but um at one hour 50 minutes as he vomits up three liters of full cream milk yeah. it, it turns out yeah. it's harder than it looks was was this something that you'd sort of planned and thought yeah i can i can do this or did you go in knowing this is going to be a backbreaker i i thought it would be hard but not as hard as it was i thought yeah. i had it dialed i <laughs> you know I've, I've, I've planted lots of trees before so i'm not a complete numpty but um yeah when i plant trees of 50 or 100 and you do it in half an hour or 45 minutes and the thing i could crank that up and make my efficiencies better and get my systems better uh but yeah, by a thousand trees, you know, I think it was daylight on on the second day, or about twenty hours, when I'd only planted a thousand. I thought I've, I have got to do something drastically different for this next few hours, or I'm just I'm cooked. So, yeah, it, it kicked my ass almost. You know, I was sort of in the nick of time. It was right. It was great. And what do you? I mean, this is probably a bit of a silly question, um, but what do you learn from something like that? You know, over and above efficient ways of planting trees. What, what did you walk away from that particular endeavour with that maybe you didn't have before? As a filmmaker on these projects too, I have the great ability to reflect mm. quite deeply about all the things I do in the aftermath because it's my job to. Mm. Uh, I, as a storyteller of things that take place, you know, so that that's a 24-hour chunk and it's a very intense 24-hour chunk, but then it takes weeks and weeks to make the film and you yeah. chop you chop over things you've got you've got six or seven hours worth of footage that that goes down to a b-roll and to a voice cut and and you're constantly thinking what's the point here Bo? what are you trying to tell your audience and what is something here that is unexpected what is you have to surprise yourself yeah. otherwise you're not going to surprise the audience and so you've got to look for that was what my phd was about was using phenomenology which is a a, mm -hmm. essentially a philosophy out of Germany uh, about what are the essences of life, uh, these unmathematical, non-number driven essences of life. And, and, and I, that's all I'm trying to do these days is just try and think, 
try and surprise myself and try and surprise the audience. And that's harder than it sounds because often we think the, the simplest and the essence things are easiest, but of course they're not. So you've just touched on something that I've been finding really interesting lately. This is that idea of non-mathematical essences of life. Um, I've been reading a lot, and there's people like, I guess, Sam Harris and a, a couple of other futurists. Harari talks about it in Homo Deus, but that propose that maybe human experience is all just algorithmic, and if we could map our neural laydown, then we could predict with 100% accuracy what people would do, that there's no free will, Sam Harris talks about, and that ultimately, you know, the, the argument is that, that AI is going to eventually do all this better than us and it'll put the human in a very interesting position in terms of the food chain. But I, I can't, I'm not clever enough or, or well-read enough to, to mount an academic argument against it, but there is something unique, or it feels to me there's something uniquely human about these kind of experience, non-mathematical, and and I think that that idea of ph- phenomenology is touching on that. What, what's your view on these kind of arguments that that you know there is no free will, or that that you know our brains are just a machine or an algorithm sort of uh, driven uh, decision making machine? Oh, look, h- half of me is willing to say that that's bonkers. That there is that the 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 complexity of the human mind can't be so rigid as to say that we are. Um, a metronome and that we are designed to a certain way and that we can't break through that design. We, I, th- I think we're too smart to, to think those things or too complex to. Then the other half of me says, Ben, I'm not sure I care in a sense. And I'm not sure that there's great intrigue with how complex our mind is, but mm. there's also because it is so complex, I'm happy just to, I'm happy just to be left wondering a little about mm. it. I, and, and that takes a fair bit of discipline to, you know, think of all the questions we have around our life, our day-to-day now, and we tend to, when we want to find something out, just Google it and get that answer. I'm trying to talk myself out of doing that. Uh, I'm not a great Googler for a lot of things anyway because of it, but I still go there and, and I still have to catch myself sometimes and think, oh, maybe you've got to figure this stuff out yourself. Uh, you know, may, are you dumbing yourself down by keying in these, these hmm. words to hmm. Google and letting yep. someone else tell you and then you trust it and that becomes your truth and your knowledge and lo and behold, your worldview is shaped by some keystrokes that you've just put into a, a screen. And so, I'm fa- you know, I watched um, uh, Nick Hornby. I love his work. Hmm. I read The Beach when I was on the beach Um in uh, years and years ago in Thailand, a great movie and great book. And he wrote uh, Ex Machina. He directed it too, I think. Came out in 2016 or something. And mm. that's awesome. And that's all about AI yeah. and how AI gets more intelligent than us. And, and yeah, lo and behold, we, we're no longer the top dog. And, and it was such a great film. I yeah, it was. was cool it? Con- this was a cool concept. So I dig thinking about it, but I'm not necessarily searching for answers. Yeah. I, I kind of like that black box mentality as well that mm. – you know, maybe we don't need to know the the intricate workings. We can just appreciate the outcomes in some ways. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know where I read. I think it was National Geographic a few years ago about how that this the Swiss are trying to map the brain, and and even if they get all of their hypotheses right with it, and they and they are able to map the brain to a certain molecular level. Um, they say that twenty thirty is the earliest possible, and I kind of like the idea that. Geez, you know, we, we know where galaxies are, light and lot, tens of thousands of light years away, but we don't know what's in our brain yet. Mm. It's kind of cool. Mm. 
I'm really interested in how you come up with the concepts. So the running bit I get, the kayaking bit I get, the signing 1,812 books, I can even, even come at that. The urban foraging, not so much. The bean diet, not so much. And then building uh, a cabin with junk. How do you come up with the concepts? They all start with, with a very real kernel that I've just thought of this thing and how then how do I up how do I make it into a story? But in, in many respects, often they're, they're to do with something practical. So Helen's cabin up on the hill, me making that out of whatever I had on the property. I mean, that was one, that was a bit of a COVID project because we're at home so much anyway. Uh, and two, but two, we live in a tiny house. We live basically in a one bedroom apartment on five acres, you know, this tiny little box on this giant block in a sense. Uh, but we didn't have, we don't have enough room for her to go to her work day without me being on top of her all the time. So I thought, right, I'll make Helen a, a, an office. Um, and look, we couldn't really go to the hardware anyway. I didn't want to go and catch COVID in town, or if that was such a thing. So I just thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna make, uh, I'm gonna make something at home. And uh, so that's where the cabin came from. Uh, in terms of, you know, foraging for things, I do genuinely love finding stuff. In fact, um, mm. Mitch is here in the studio now, and he's been scrolling through this morning uh, footage for. Um, of, of my cameraman who recently lost or one of our cameramen recently lost his wallet out in the wilderness and so I went off to try and find it and make a film about it and so we're getting a b-roll now of all the things the cameraman's done that's funny and wacky so one little idea of okay I'm going to go and find this guy's wallet because I love finding things ends up being a film about the cameraman and so <laughs> you just you just follow your nose sometimes and a story comes out of sometimes nothing but sometimes a real genuine something that's big Bo, your dad was an artist, and I think part of what I think is amazing about the human experience and part of my, I guess, counter-thesis to any AI arguments is that ability to appreciate things that, that just aren't functional, that, that just move you in a way that, that's not utilitarian. Have, what moves you in an, in an art sense? Is there, are there any pieces, uh, any sort of particular um, sort of art experiences that have really moved you in a, in a profound way? Yeah, I really love art, you know, the medium of art and its subjectivity. Uh, I sometimes resist the, the notion that the state or others should have to pay for someone to be artistic. I think there needs to be a level of commercialism in someone's artistic pursuits so that they can make it mm. self-funding. I don't always think people have to pay money into it, to the tax coffers for them to then give it out to these people who are so-called artistic. Um I think it's very divisive in a sense, but uh, I do. I love. I, I love going to um, to museums and and seeing art and watching kids paint. and And I have great love for all that stuff. I've just finished hanging my dad's thirty fourth one man art show actually in his gallery, <laughs> and I've never done that before. I've never hung a full series of art before. It was um, it was really fun. Mm. So, yeah. And, and in terms of the inspiration, I totally agree with you, Ben. About dad and I have gone to. Uh, some famous uh, art shows before and stood in front of some of the priceless artworks and 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 stood there and just genuinely appreciated for what it mm. is because there's for, for every one of us that just stands there and appreciates it there's someone that's willing to write a big fat critique about it and try yeah. and get the backstory of the artwork and from from someone that knows my father and he's produced thousands of artwork and he's he's a very talented and a very good artist and he's he's a lifelong artist he's a hand to mouther he's never he's just done it by himself and sold paintings his whole life um 
dad will admit to you readily that he doesn't know where half of his paint strokes come from. Mm. And so for someone to then come along and say, this means that, and this yeah, means that, yeah. it's just, it's just baloney, a lot of it. Um, yep. And yes, there's some rhyme and reason about structures and, and about our internal manifests and how it comes out in paint. And I get all that, but it's often, it's not, it's often very unpinnable. Uh, so yeah, no, I love art because of that. Yeah, and it, and your point about the um, perception related, you know, it's hard, you can't. I don't think you can quantify absolutely sort of good or bad. You know, if it moves someone, and and even if it is commercial stuff, and it and it moves people, or or uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of that is about the individual more than the the actual piece in many cases. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, case in point, right? So I'm hanging Dad's artwork this week. Mm. Uh, he's got. 26 artworks ranging from sort of your sort of two by two meter giant canvases to two small ones the size of a laptop. Uh, and it's in a big space. It's an old town hall that he dragged to his farm um, 30 years ago. Amazing space. Uh, big white walls, but full of crap everywhere, but a really eclectic, wonderful, uh, sort of interesting space to be. And I'm having to put away a lot of artwork that he has out in the general year to year before I can put up his new works and i'm putting away genuinely a lot of works that are left over from shows over the last 50 years mm. works that are the hardest to consider they're just they're not the prettiest they're not instantly appealing they're awkward they're they're his worst artworks <laughs> but you know what all of his worst artworks still sell someone comes in and it's like a bolt of lightning has just hit them and they think what dad and I know is probably one of his weaker artwork. They sell it and they love it and, mm, and, mm. and, and they connect with it. And you think, you know what, that is bloody brilliant because he's not just, you know, it's spoken to someone for a particular reason. And that just, that's what blows subjectivity up. It's great. Let's talk favorite films and probably like favorite children, but which one of your films are you proudest of? I thought we were going to talk about other people's films, and that got me pretty excited because well, we I've had this, this question yeah. a few times before. But um, no, no, I'll, uh, my own films, yeah, look, well, the, the beauty of my films too is they're not just mine these days, so I get to appreciate other people's input. For for five or ten years there, it was just my bloody horrible shot making out there in the middle of <laughs> wherever, uh, recording bad sounds and then having to come back and try and reinvent the wheel when I've, you know, don't have the shot that I need. <laughs> Nowadays, I've got the luxury of having uh, Mitch and a bunch of other great friends who make shots for us. So then I can start to, it's a way, it's a much fuller story now that we have in front of us to then chop up. But look, of the current YouTube suite that's up there, um, <clears throat> uh, I mean, my, the the one of the least clicked on, but one of my most favourites would be Junk Paddle. Mm. I think it's a really sweet natured little film of just making a paddle out of junk wood that I found between the train station and my office. And I think it probably needs a new title to get away from the idea of it being a, a how to make a paddle film because it's kind of not. It's 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 really about something bigger and and more. I think, but yeah, I really liked it. Junk Paddle, just making a film out of. Uh, yeah, junk wood. And what about other people's films? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, Wes Anderson, the, the kooky director, I yeah. love anything he makes because it's so, uh, gee, you know, it's 
it's just cool. My little daughter, who's two and a half, I reckon she'd love it. And that's a really good litmus test. She's going through a massive Katy Perry and Taylor Swift stage at the moment. She's only two and a half. <laughs> and what that does, what that shows me is because because I'm often on YouTube checking things or, or looking over comments or responding to comments, she'll come along. She'll say, oh, Katy Perry, Katy Perry. So we'll go to a Katy Perry song and she'll choose. She'll, she's, she's dynamite. She'll give me 10 to 15 seconds on a song before she says next one, unless it captivates her. Mm. And Katy Perry or Taylor Swift nearly always captivate, as opposed to the other hundred things that I try and trial her on. So she's an excellent uh, creative um, litmus test, I suppose. Uh, my point to all this is that Wes Anderson, I suppose, he's, he's just very interesting to watch for any age. You could watch a two-year-old right through to a 90-year-old and, mm. Uh, I suppose I get that from him. Otherwise, my other uh, highly commended would be someone like Sophia Coppola with um, Lost in Translation, Bill Murray. Great movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love Bill Murray anyway, but was, that was a cool film. I think it was just beautiful storytelling. Not expensive. I'm a bit over Hollywood hype, you know, yeah, 100 yeah, million yeah. wank now. I, I want to see some really good acting and I want to see great writing and that had that. And in fact, Bill Murray, was Wes Ander- uh, was the um, Life Aquatic, was that Wes Anderson? Yeah, the, the Steve the Zissou Cousteau. I think he plays. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah, right. He wears his little red beanie around. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've clearly got kind of a, a a bent there. I'm a bit of an indie kind of watcher, I suppose. Mm. But it, it's funny what you said about the, the Taylor Swift and the, the Katy Perry. Um, you know, it is mass, commercial, pop, et cetera, and, and you could easily get on a high horse and talk about, oh, it's not proper art. But it is. It makes people happy. And, and I mean, I'm actually really excited about seeing the new Top Gun movie. I'm, I'm not expecting, you know, Citizen Kane, but it will be escapism and, and fun and, and a spectacle and, and, you know, it's your $100 million wank, but uh, it, it still, you know, fills a, a niche, doesn't it? It does, yeah, and I think we can all get a bit high and mighty with our, our artfulness. And, and and the word pop is, you know, to the indie scene pretty, is, is I don't know, not trendy, not cool, but popular is also means you've got a, a appeal appeal to the widest group the widest demographic that the masses so you've got to do a lot right you've got to be quite inclusive and what Katy Perry and Taylor Swift do is they make stuff that is very digestible and it is very inclusive mm. it's really you know my two and a half year old's not scared about it it's really it's attractive to watch um, and it's very clever and very hard to do so I do respect stuff that is seen by the masses because they've done a lot right to get there. Has that ever influenced the way you make your art, your movies? Do you, do you ever, or do you consider sort of mass appeal in terms of the stories you tell or the way that you portray them? Or, or you know, is, is does that factor in, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Yeah, it does. And more and more so in some respects. Um it doesn't weigh. I'm, I've never been an anxious person at all. I, I don't. I don't carry the burden of that. That if it doesn't quite work out the way I I really want it, I'm just going to move on and be happy in other realms. But mm. in saying that, if I if I think I'm going to become a YouTuber and I'm going to do this genuinely, because being a filmmaker and a YouTuber are quite different. They're very different, <laughs> actually. Um, yeah. If I'm going to be a YouTuber and we're going to make money out of it. Uh, then we need maximum eyeballs. We need to we need to play to the algorithm. We need to play to the medium. Yep. So you've got to shift. You've got to uh, you've got to you've got to do that. And yet, and yet, fundamentally, you still just got to do what you want to do because 
uh, think of all the great musicians out there. They don't they don't start with playing with the algorithm. They start by making a great song that they that they enjoyed writing and then they enjoy playing. And you've got to just keep doing that. And mm. so that'll always be my north star. And then you f- you know you flip around the edges for how you can actually make that north star better. Yeah, and and I think if that's your north star, but you're conscious of the algorithm or of the the mass appeal, then there's a happy medium in there somewhere, isn't it? I hope so. I hope to think so, mate. Yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, the, the YouTube thing's going to die a death, and I'll go back <laughs> to being a writer or an academic or a farmer or something. But but that's cool too, you know. Uh, but at the moment, everything's just rolling out beautifully, and if we do our job right, I think we can have our cake and eat it too, and, and actually mm. make a, a living out of it. Yeah, and on that, have your cake and eat it too. Is it possible that maybe you're posting um, films on YouTube that make you a bit of money so you can do the things that you really want to do that would never make you money on YouTube? Yeah, well, we, I mean, um, I haven't sent the email yet, but we've, you know, we were approached by a tourism body to go and create some, a, a tourism, a film that was, that is shot in their jurisdiction. Um and it's very subtle, you know, we're, we're, and you can do it with a lot of fun, but we haven't really gone down that pathway yet because you're still owned by someone. You've got to go through bureaucracy to get your paycheck. And and whilst we're out here in our down jackets right now in an old garden shed earning stuff or money, it's pretty liberating to stand here and we're our own bosses. And so uh, we don't really need to go and make this tourism thing, but we probably will dip our toes in and, and just go and see how it feels and see if we can sustain it like that. But uh, yeah, I don't think you have to dance with the devil, but you, 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 there might be some compromises that come along the way, but you, you certainly do it on your own terms, I think. So is fame and fortune on YouTube an achievable thing? I mean, we've got a lot of people trying to make it big on YouTube. Some have, and you scratch your head at the way that some of them made it. Yours is a bit more logical. You're putting up entertaining content that's been consumed millions and millions of times. But fame and fortune via YouTube, how achievable is it? Oh, slim pickings. Uh, um, mm. well, I think very, very doable. But uh, I mean, I don't, ha- I don't have the formula that's really suited to YouTube in some respects because, you know, our content at the moment is sort of averaging seven week uploads, and you need, we need, you probably really need a weekly upload to mm. be really explosive. But that's that's not the that's there are exceptions and so we can be of a form of an exception i suppose and we we hybridize it too we, we do film showings now and we i'm still writing uh, a day or two days a week and so i'll have books supplement this which brings in another market and um I basically just keep feeling it out because you're, ne- you're never an expert in this space because it's always moving yeah. i thought i thought tiktok was going to blow over five years ago and look what it's done now so who knows, who knows where YouTube will be in five years. So speaking even further ahead than that, um, you've said on a number of occasions that you're petrified of death. What is it about death that petrifies you? As, as there's very little absoluteness in my life, uh, in a sense. Mm. I don't know what my daughters will look like. I don't know what they will become. I don't know how their health will play out. I don't know half of those answers for myself. Having that absoluteness of end of life and not being a, a religious man or spiritual man in a sense, I'm very practical, I'm very, I'm very here, I'm very present. Um, 
I like. I really like. I like it here. I really like life. <laughs> I bloody love it. Right. So I don't want to not be here. Yep. Um, and so, well, and that's the fundamental truth to it. And I say, I, I think I, yeah, I probably call BS on a lot of people that aren't petrified of mm. death, but they just deal with it in a different way. But I think, I think underneath it all, and when if they really gave it its worth they'd be shit scared of it too because it's worth being shit scared of uh, because time just is, is unrelenting and it never stops and you've got to use it in a particular way. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we, well, Tim and I both love the the Stoics and this concept of memento mori, you know, like remember you're going to die. Like don't forget that little, little chestnut. It does actually drive you to, you know, seizing the day, being present, whatever cliche you want to put in it. But it, it kind of puts things in perspective, I think. Yeah, it's sort of uh I just I love busyness and and a lot of a lot of people say, you know, that I, I have a crack at the slow movement in my my book, The Backyard Adventure, because I think it's kind of wank. We we've over romanticized being incredibly busy doing a multitude of tasks, which on paper sounds wonderful for me too, but it's, it's all right to have other people be experts in your realm to farm those things out. And look, I, I would consider my grandmother, who's this 92-year-old woman, lives in town by herself and is just awesome. She's an incredible woman and she's the epitome of this slow movement. She does everything. Mm. There's, there's virtually no plastic in her life. There's no waste. She just makes stuff and gets on with things and wants for nothing. Um, she's had a hard life. She's had a bloody hard life of doing all of that stuff of making everything from hose fittings to clothes to having six kids at her ankles the whole time. It's just, um, you know, so yeah, I, I don't mind being busy, but I want to choose what I'm busy with too. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the book, The Backyard Adventurer, Meaningful and Meaningful and Pointless Expeditions, Self-Experiments and the Value of Other People's Junk. What motivated you to write the book? Well, I was, um, I, it, it's, I, in some respects, I thought I was too young to write a book. I thought, how does a 40 year old, or I was, I started writing when I was 38 and change, I think. And how does a 38 year old have enough stories in their head to, to write a book? And I say that with, um, because I know you can be an awful lot younger and write a book. Mm-hmm. Mozart started writing music at five, but I thought, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I have, the story yet to expect people to read at my age. I feel like I've still got some more wisdom years to come and, and I'll, I'll write a book then. But it doesn't just have to be about um, this great journey you think you've got in your, you can write about X, Y, Z. Just just write about what you've done, but do it in a way that is sort of, I suppose, attainable to people and a bit lively and so I just started writing and see where it went and I had a really good editor at the publisher and we were able to cobble something together and I've enjoyed coming back to to writing a book and not a freaking PhD which just <laughs> I, I didn't mind academic writing but it, it's so um it's cutthroat it's it's I think it's just it's just glorified plagiarism a lot of it I think there's very little original thought anymore because you have to use everyone else's thoughts to make your thoughts seem prominent so I, I, I'm a bit resisting now of academic writing and I'm really enjoying being back in book world. Bo, you don't strike me as the kind of person who wastes too much emotional energy on hating things but no. are, are there things that you 
I guess that you, uh, maybe you despair of that that other people waste their time on, or or that that you think are meaningless or or um, negative in the the world around us. Yeah, well, I know my most. Um, so it, one of the things I'll look at occasionally on YouTube is the likable rate of my films, and they're all pretty likable because I'm an optimistic kind of storyteller, and I don't tend to dwell on on like you say the negative aspects of things. But let's my my one negative film, or at least has a lower ranking than all the others, is is the film uh, Haircut Hater gets a makeover by wife, which is my wife gives me a real quick hair, hair, haircut because I do I do hate haircuts, but I hate it in a kind of fun way, not a hate, yeah, hate, yeah. hate way. Um, but the fact that I have a negative word within the title of my film uh, attracts a certain type of feedback and a certain sort type of viewer as well. And, and it's only a small percentage, but you instantly get, you instantly badge yourself as a whinger or a complainer or a particular kind of person, even though you've used that word in a particular way mm. so no i certainly don't get hung up with things and and i suppose my pet peeves in life are um people to really uh grasp onto something that they think is going to tick you off yeah. <laughs> and, and kind of uh, it just yeah like you said it's a waste of my time i don't tend to bite into it these much these days i just yeah, if I'm my own worst enemy in terms of time management, so that's that's my own pet peeve. You must have put a, put out all of the barbers on the planet or something that you're a haircut hater. Yeah, well, there you go. I tried to say something nice about them too. In, in fact, I did a few times, but I don't I don't think it made the the, the final cut because I like the idea a bit like the barber. I love the barber going in for a twelve buck cut. Awesome, but I just I do despise the hundred and twenty dollar cut for roughly the same time because. The, you know, you get a latte and you get a soft music in the background or a foot rub while you're doing it. I think it's just, it's not my thing, <laughs> but I get it. But, it, and it. but it's almost like that, um, you know, the appreciation of art and that sort of stuff. That this, It's almost the Emperor's New Clothes with some of this stuff, isn't it? <laughs> the, yeah. The $120 haircut that looks like the Just Cuts thing and, and you know, the, the masterpiece that looks like your kid could have drawn it. There's, yeah, there's a bit of wank around it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, Bo, as you go at life with this incredible tempo, how does your family keep up or maybe how does your family deal with it? Uh, I get that a bit, actually. A lot of YouTube commentaries on, um, you know, you, does your wife mind you going from doing these odd things and, and you're buggering off for chunks of time often? And, and I am less and less doing that, I must admit. And, and the whole lockdown situation has really helped with that is to compress your family time. Uh, but Helen is excellent to a point where she just, if, if I, I, I write about this in the book where one morning I was, I was going to go off and collect all this junk wood along the train line to go to my university job to make a paddle. All these things that the university would never condone, but my <laughs> wife didn't blink an eye. She's oh yeah. All right. Love that. Sounds like a good idea. Have a great, great day. You know, <laughs> she just sends you off and, uh, and I and I can't tell you how much I love her for that because she's just this. She just she gets it. She gets it that it's fun and quirky and it's and it's um, oddball in a sense that it's that my husband. It's normal for my husband. And so I just I just think it's great. And she's really sharp in a very. She's a business manager, and so savvy with with how to deal with the world. Very people orientated, and I'm just not. So um, we're we're a good team. Mm-hmm. What are your favourite things to do amongst all of these eclectic pursuits? What do you do for you? 
Uh, I love really simple things. Um, in a sense, I love small ritualistic things. I am very habitual. I have a pot of coffee at around 10 o'clock every morning and I can look forward to that from 5 a.m. You know, I'm up, I'm up early with the kids or writing and I'll hold off on something that's a luxury, even if it's just a cup of coffee because of that sense mm. of anticipation. Mm. And, and I very much, I've only been married once in my life. I only intend to get married once in my life. But the 12 months leading up to the marriage was just fantastic because you got this big thing that you're looking forward to and you're buying wine for and you're making tables and, you know, it was just great. And in many respects, I, I've always got these dangled carrots in front of me that I could have at any time, but I have them out there in the future. And so I, my habits tend to reflect those small things that are luxuries out in front. And, um, and it works. It works a bloody treat. You're really happy that way too because yeah. you've always got these small things. And it might only be on, from expeditionary life when you have to ration food, and you guys would know well and truly this, I, I would take 30 pastels, tiny little pastels, 55 grams worth of licorice pastels on a 10-day expedition. And those little, those little black uh, bits of uh, reward were, were just, they, they kind of map your whole day. Mm. And look, I'm having a wonderful time wherever I am, but knowing that I've got this little luxury with a, with a warm cup of tea or a cup of coffee or a biscuit or something with this bit of liquorette, it was just, that's all I need. I'm very simple like that. Surfing the urge. Yeah. yeah, this principle yeah, yeah. of urge surfing. Yeah, it's uh... yeah, it's a lovely, great concept. And I, I haven't read much about this. You guys are far more well read in these sort of life affirming concepts than me. But I, I um, yeah, I think I, I, I get them. I, I think I get these things that are written about. And I'd go, yep, yeah, I'd tip my cap to a lot of these things you guys talk about. What about music? We've talked a little bit about art. Uh, what are your favourite tracks and? Little plug, the Unforgiving 60 podcast has the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify with all of our guests' power songs. When you need oh, a bit of pro- right. when you need a bit of propulsion, what's your power song? That's a really good idea, fellas. I'm gonna I'm taking up the whole podcast game. I'm gonna have to steal that idea. <laughs> uh, no, no, I won't. But in terms of music, yeah, look, I have a pretty eclectic mix. Um, I mean, I love, I I could listen to classical music sometimes. I find myself sometimes by mistake on the classical channel on the radio in my car, and yet 12 minutes later, I'm still listening to it. So I I appreciate just how good it is. But if I'm to go to anything, I mean, Radiohead is is probably my biggest go-to band. I find Tom Tom stuff pretty amazing. It sort of... uh, you know, it's very thoughtful. And for someone like a runner who's running through big landscapes or paddling across seas, I, I think it's really cool. Uh, but Jeff Buckley, you know, the Rolling yeah. Stones, bloody hell, Harry Styles got a new song out that uh, that I thought was really cool uh, a while back. Alt-J's great. I'm a bit of an indie alternative kind of dude, but, gee, I was a, I, used, I listened to dance music for 10 years too, electronic, weird stuff so yeah it's kind of it's kind of weird and, and wide wide ranging if we were however going to press you for one single track mm. that would be your power song you you need a fire up you need that that sort of extra edge what, what would you go to but well i had this i used to when i worked for 10 years in the states um we had a, the jukebox at this crap bar which was an awesome bar of course because yeah, it was yeah. a clapped out old bar and i'd always put uh talking heads but i don't quite know the song i'm not sure it's psycho killer but it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a talking head song and it was and it would 
It was just great. Um, think of it was probably one of their top five tracks. Is, is that the, it is, Yeah, it is Psycho Killer, and on Spotify it has two hundred and seventy million streams. <laughs> well, that's pretty. Yeah, so there you go. I, th- I think it was Psycho Killer, but I'm not sure it was. It might be one of their other Talking Head songs, which I thought was just a banger. And it used to yeah, bring the house down. We'd play it at midnight every night. Well, there's one actually, he's talking about bringing the house down. There's one called Burning Down the House. <laughs> In fact, Tom Jones did a very good uh, cover of that a, a few years ago. Bo, that's been fantastic. Mm. Thank you very much for, for sharing your time and your perspectives on a, a whole range of things. We, we don't tend to script conversations, and I'm very glad we didn't with this because I think we covered some really interesting ground. Good on you, fellas. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I, um, I, I'd happily talk to you guys. You know, I do a lot of podcasts, and I often think at the end of it that was a great conversation, um, and then I don't give it much more thought. But for this one, I think... Uh, it's probably got to do with you guys too and knowing that I'd like to know more about your lives as well, your your sort of secret lives out there. And yeah, it's the kind of thing you'd kind of want to continue the conversation. So thanks and it's been great and that's a good place to it's a good place to be on the end of it. We might appear in one of Bo's short films in the future. <laughs> secret life of Ben and Tim. Wow, <laughs> fellas, yeah, there you go. Yeah. You're doing one on a junk business partner. <laughs> <laughs> got one of those. That's good. That's right. the trouble with putting junk, you know, junk's got lots of connotations, not just for yeah. rubbish. You yeah. know? So you put yeah. junk in, a, in front of a few things and you get some hits that you didn't expect. <laughs> that's right. That's in fact, right. now I'm thinking I'm not going to Google junk paddle because I was <laughs> That's gonna... <laughs> right. The net nanny fires up. So, Bo, we've talked about your uh, YouTube. People can find out more about your films on YouTube at Bo Miles and your web website is just bowmiles.com yeah yeah awesome you're also on instagram and on facebook yeah boisms uh facebook uh, i'm not a huge socials kind of dude youtube's where the, the sort of the main action's at but uh yeah any of them and uh yeah go check out my book it's it's good fun and there's another one on the way so um i'm learning how to write again yep fantastic the book is the backyard adventurer and do you take requests if people wanted to perhaps ask you to do a funky film yeah, well, kind of. Um, with the book, anyway, I, I write personalised books here from the garden shed and we send them all over the world. We actually had some from for, for Ukraine that we've had to hold off on for a while, which is which was a real wake-up call and very endearing that someone wants it in Ukraine. But, yeah, we'll send books anyway. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bo. Thanks, fellas. Great talking to you uh, and uh, good on you. Great podcast. Thanks, Cheers, mate. Ciao.
Coffee Brew. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.